Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 308. I really appreciate you deciding to join us. Very good. So, one of the things that has been obvious for some time is that America has sort of devolved into a cold civil war. There are three major factions, and these factions are uh, spread out over our geographical territory in different ways, such that we have red states and blue states, but every red state has blue areas and every blue state has red areas. And, you know, it's, it's uh, complicated. I would say that we have a great middle of people who just wish the conflict would go away. They are, they just want to live a regular ordinary life and they would rather not be forced to take sides. If pressed, they probably, most of them probably agree with the common sense arguments of the normals, which is one of the factions on the end. So you've got the intoleristas, you've got the woke, you've got the commies on one end, the, the revolutionaries, the people who want to burn everything down on one end. And you've got the normals, the conservatives, the self-conscious conservatives on the other end, and then people in the middle. I want to talk about what's going on on the two ends. What distinguishes the woke from the conservatives and what distinguishes the conservatives from the woke? This just occurred to me, this formulation just occurred to me the other day. I've, I've said for years that the, everything we're going through, the, all these cultural battles are the result of uh, a struggle over the editorial control of the dictionary. Yes, and that's true. Uh, the woke want to redefine everything. And we don't want to let them redefine everything. And so, hence, there's a battle. But there's a particular word that I think is uh, maybe more important than the other words. I've come to realize that the two different factions, and the reason there can be no peace arranged between the factions, the reason there can be no deal brokered, the way you you used to be able to broker a, a compromise between a Democrat and a Republican back in 1950, you could work out a deal and both of them could go out and face the cameras and, and explain the deal they, they'd come to. You could still work out a deal. But everything now is inflamed. And the reason it's inflamed is because we have radically different definitions of madness, different definitions of insanity. And this goes back to what I talked about uh, last week, where we have a certain approach to our emotions, empathy, the passions, the feels, right? One side is radically subjective and defines insanity as any attempt to restrict, discipline, or bridle the passions. The other side, the normals, look at unbridled passion, untethered empathy, and the word that comes to their mind when you describe a society like that where everybody gives way to their emotions whenever they feel like it, that strikes them as hellish, like an asylum, like a madhouse. Uh, so 
we we have riots. We have people sobbing over, you know, uh, if a conservative speaker comes on campus and they bring in therapy, you know, therapy dogs and people are sobbing and they have to go into a special room to use their coloring books to work th- work through the trauma of someone on campus uh, doing something icky like disagree with them. So what's going on? Well, we conservative people look at that and they say, that's insane. That's just mad. But for them, looking at us, and this goes back to the viral uh, video I was talking about last week, when they hear about a mom disciplining a child for a grumpy attitude or a, a moany attitude, that is like you heaved a dead cat at the, into the Holy of Holies. Yeah, only a madman would discipline someone for feeling a certain way. Only a madman would discipline someone for feeling a certain way. So there you have it. America's cold civil war boiled down to one issue. How do we define madness? Always will be God. Continuing with episode 308 in the podcast, in our hamartiological studies, we have come across another hapax, which is the, the word hapax, H-A-P-A-X. Hopox is a word that refers to a word only found one time in the New Testament. And that word this week is kakoetheia, kakoetheia, K-A-K-O-E-T-H-E-I-A, kakoetheia, which our translators rendered as meaning malignity, malignity. So here's the one passage. It occurs one time, and here it is. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Maliciousness there is kakia. That's our word from last week. Uh, Maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity. That's our word this week, kakoetheia, malignity, whisperers. Okay, so this is one verse extracted from a list. And as I believe, as I uh, as I believe I've mentioned before, my father taught me that sins are like grapes. They come in bunches. Sin is a gregarious herd animal. Sin seeks out companionship. And the companions it seeks out never make anything better. Everybody drags everybody else down. So when unrighteousness seeks out fornication, and fornication seeks out deceit, and deceit seeks out murder, and murder seeks out malignity, and so on, everybody is dragged down. They cluster these sins cluster together and they compound all the problems. Now, as I just mentioned, as it happens, this verse, Romans one twenty nine, showed up in last week's lesson. That was when we were looking at the word under maliciousness. This one is closely related. It's a close cousin. Malignity represents a sour and rancorous disposition. You just look at everybody through a jaundiced eye. You're just bitter and... A lesson for parents and or teachers or pastors is this. When you see one of these, then you should be attuned, at least attuned for the possibility of any of the others. If someone demonstrates open malignity, then the chances, for example, of sexual immorality or deceitful lying is much increased. Now, if somebody if somebody is doing something clearly and obviously wrong and the sin has got them in its grip, and they appear unaware of how bad it is or how bad it looks, it's not wrong 
to wonder if there's anything else. It's not wrong to wonder if this is just uh, the tip of the iceberg. One one of my favorite stories about my my dad is uh, I, I heard a friend of a uh, friend of mine telling this story. He was this friend was counseling someone uh, together with my dad, and uh, th- this person came in to the counseling session with a tale of woe. It was just you know all of the, the all of these problems, and they they dumped out the the problems on the on the desk, and. My friend was sitting there listening to my to my dad. My dad said, "Well, yes, um, thank, you know something to the effect of, well, yes, but what are we going to do about all your shoplifting?" <laughs> and and uh, my friend about fell out of his chair. Where did that come from? Well, where it came from was this. I think this doctrine that sins are like grapes; they come in bunches. And and there were some tells in how she narrated her story that indicated indicated something. It wasn't clairvoyance. It wasn't uh, the gift of discernment. It was more like a Sherlock Holmes thing where he, you know, Sherlock Holmes is able to put a bunch of things together and then say, elementary, my dear Watson. Uh, it was that sort of, it was that sort of thing. So when you see one of these things, you should be attuned, at least attuned, budget for the possibility of the others. If somebody, if someone demonstrates open malignity, then the chances of one of these other things being present is much higher. Sin is never content to remain static. Like cancer or Canadian thistle, it always wants to grow. And the other sins around it are quick to provide the nutrients. One sin provides the nutrients for another one. They all help each other grow. God don't never change. He's God. So, continuing with the podcast 308, uh, the book I want to review is um, a book I don't think I've reviewed before, but, you know, who knows? If I did, sorry about that, but I don't think I've reviewed this. This is a C.S. Lewis book, Preface to Paradise Lost, which I just uh, went through again recently. And I had read, uh, I'd read Preface to Paradise Lost decades ago uh, a number of times. So I'd gone through it and gone through it again. I don't know how many times I'd gone through it and learned a great deal. It was a, for me, it was a, a very formative book, a very influential book in my thinking. One chapter in particular on hierarchy and Milton's, Milton's view of hierarchy. So it was, a, it was an important book. If I, if I had to list the top 25 books that had an impact on my life, Preface to Paradise Lost, would be one of them. Well, sometime in the last year or so, I bought a new copy of it. I'd really marked up my uh, my original copy, which I still have. But I got another fresh copy, and I read I read through it gradually, just chipping away a page or two at a time, and finished it. And I, you know, I appreciated it. But then it popped up on my Audible uh, suggestion, and so I listened. I just finished listening to it, or rather, I I went through it again. And listening to it, it it was like, and I don't know if this is because listening to a book routes it through a different part of your brain, but this time listening to it, it had all the impact of the original reading. Like, oh, whoa, wow, (laughs) yikes. And it was, and Lewis is talking about much more than simply a literary analysis of, of Paradise Lost. 
the book does make you appreciate Milton's genius, uh, whether or not you are fully equipped to appreciate it. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that he didn't enjoy the company of uh, small children, but that because he was living within the Tao, within the heritage of uh, Western civilization and natural law, he recognized that this lack of affinity on his part was a failing in him. It wasn't a problem with the little kids. It was a problem in him. And I'm the same way with Paradise Lost. I've, I've read it a number of times, and I'm actually in the middle of reading it again. But the people, there, there are certain people who grasp and see and savor the sweep of the whole thing, which is just lost on me. Uh, I, you know, I can soldier my way through. And I think of Samuel Johnson's comment about, about Paradise Lost. He, uh, Samuel Johnson said that Milton was a very uh, great genius, and the English language collapsed under the weight of his genius. But Lewis is a fan. Lewis sees what Milton was doing. He understands what Milton is doing, and he makes me want he makes me want to appreciate it, although I'm not yet at the level where I can. I can read Paradise Lost and and I can appreciate certain lines. I can appreciate certain expressions. I can appreciate that something big is going on. But there are some people, but you know, you know, there are some people who can listen to a Bach concerto and they not only can enjoy the music, but they can understand the math that was involved. It's that sort of thing. Uh, there are people who understand the sweep of all. And I'm not one of those people. But reading Preface to Paradise Lost made me want to go back and try again. But at the same, whether you do or not, whether you ever come to appreciate Paradise Lost the way a lettered person ought to, uh, you are learning a, a bunch of other things about the nature of sin, about the nature of temptation, about the devil's pride, about hierarchy and submission. You know, anyway, it's just a great book. Preface to Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm.